At first glance, John chapter 1 appears to be a few sentences about the Word, and then a simple story from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Through repeated readings, however, we see the Gospel of John and the first chapter of John for what they are. The first chapter of John is a key to the entire Gospel of John, which is meant to be understood in layers and to reward a lifetime of study. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. Glad to have you back with me. And for me, this has been one of my favorite lessons that I've ever prepared. And it's why it's taken me so long to release, because the, the more I got into it, the more I wanted to talk about. And uh, so I'm going to have to be cutting this lesson short. There's no two ways about it. There's just too much in the first chapter of John for us to possibly get to. But uh, if you're interested in what we talk about, I would point you to... Um, I would point you to the Bible Project about the Gospel of John. I would point you to Tim Mackey. And I would point you to uh, the commentaries on the Book of John by Don Carson, among many other things that you'll you'll find mentioned in, in those sources. Um, so let's get started. First of all, if you have a question or a comment, if you'd like me to answer something coming up or something in the past, please email the show, gt at gospeltoctrine.com. So let's begin. Uh, the... The book of, or the the first chapter of the Gospel of John is you would, you would be forgiven for thinking that it's a little bit confusing, and one of the first points we'll make is that this wasn't intended to be understood on first reading. So if you were to if you were to read any of the other Gospels, there there are some of them that are more dense than others. Matthew, for example, has a ton of Old Testament references in his Gospel. But if you, let's say that you had a perfect understanding of the Old Testament, and it, it wasn't uncommon in the time of Jesus and afterwards and before for people, for, for studious Jews, to have committed the entire first five books of the Bible to memory, which seems very incredible to us. But they, when I say it wasn't uncommon, it wasn't just rabbis that would do this sort of uh, feat of memory. And so they were they were very well steeped in their scriptures, and this was the language of their everyday life, where the was the language of the Hebrew scriptures. And so in Matthew, if you had that sort of understanding, you're reading the book of Matthew, Matthew would have made sense, and you could read it all the way through on the first uh, on the first pass, and possibly even understand everything that Matthew was going for. Now, the difference between the book of Matthew and the book of John is that John had didn't have that intention. Uh, John wanted you to have to read several times through. So the first time, it, it's in fact, it's meant to be understood. The book, the book itself is meant to be understood retrospectively. And to understand John's purpose, again, like in the book of Luke, we have at the beginning Luke saying, here was my purpose, here's how I wrote the book. If you remember, we talked about those first four verses in the book of Luke. Well, in, in uh, the book of John, we have that at the end, in John chapter 20, the second to last chapter, after the uh, resurrection, you have John show up and say, sort of, this is, this is my purpose as I wrote my gospel. So if you turn to John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the last two verses in this chapter, uh, and I'll just read that. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So you, you have John testifying right here. There are a lot of things that I left out. I I carefully picked and chose the the examples that I would put in my gospel, and and it by implication John is saying I've read what it what there is out there about Jesus. I know about the other gospels, and I am purposely writing for a different purpose. And here and here's what he's saying: These are written, but these meaning these examples, these signs that Jesus has done in front of me. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So he's saying, my purpose, I'm not a, I'm not an impartial observer of the life of Jesus. I have a purpose in uh, witnessing to you, and witnessing is a theme that we will 
come back to again and again. But um, he's, he's saying, I chose purposely the examples that I put in the book. And as we'll discover, not only did he choose very carefully uh, and very deliberately the stories of Jesus that he would choose to relate, but he also put them in a specific order. And then he gave us a key to understanding them, and that's what John chapter 1 is. So John chapter 1 feels sort of indecipherable to us in our day and age. And it's possible that it also felt that way to the, the people in, of Jesus' time or of John's time, which is about 100 years later. But the, that very indecipherability is what, led, is what gave this book its long-lasting value. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of book that you read 40 times and you understand something new each time. And that, was, that is very obviously what John intended. And if you turn to the end of chapter 21, so we were just in chapter 20, the last two verses of chapter 21 are the last two verses in the book of John. There's, we're in, earlier in the chapter, we're reading a story about Peter and John and Jesus. And then these last two verses, this is the disciple which testifieth of these things. And in, earlier in the book of John, there's this disciple which is referred to as that disciple that Jesus loved. And John doesn't call himself by name, but the point is now they're naming who the disciple is that Jesus loved. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, here's something interesting. John just sort of poked his head out of the narrative and said, here I am, here's my purpose. And now we have somebody else who's saying, we know that his testimony is true. So this is, this is proof that early on in the, in the history of the Christian church, there were congregations, there were communities of Christians using the gospel of John. And here's one of them re- having received this gospel and they're bearing witness of what John said and saying, we also know that it's true. So this is like a little editorial comment on top of even the author writing it. And they add this as well. So that was verse 24. Here's the final verse. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So the, the very comments, both from the editors and from the author of the Gospel of John, are to say, not I have included everything that you would possibly want to believe in Jesus, but I have carefully chosen and I've left a lot of things out. So I've, I have not only chosen what I would put in, but I've also chosen the things that I would leave out. And there are many things that fit that description. And so you can know, and, and, and especially you know, knowing what we know about biographies today, some biographies come in at 800, 1,000, 1,500 pages, just depending on the subject matter, and several volumes. And Jesus certainly, what, what they're saying here is Jesus certainly could have rated a, a biography of that length. So the fact that the Gospel of John is the length that it is, is a testimony to the care with which John curated this record. And he has a very specific purpose, which is to show us that Jesus is the Christ, which had a specific meaning to the people of his time. This was uh, the Hebrew word for, for Messiah, for anointed one, the chosen one, this, this prophesied ruler who would come from the line of David and save the people and lead them into a new type of existence. And so you want, that you would believe, God, John says at the end of chapter 20, you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the son of God. And this is, this is different from a son of God, as we read about in the Old Testament, meaning a divine being. Now John is saying specifically that he is the son of God. And we'll learn exactly what that means as we go back to chapter 1. And that believing you might have life through his name. Now that word life has specific significance as well. So now that we've looked a little bit at the end of the book and we've understood where we're heading, now we can go back. So that's that's kind of how the the book of John is arranged that you you start to understand chapter 1 only as you read the remaining chapters in the rest of the book. Let, and, and hopefully as I talk more, you'll see what I mean. So the, the chapter begins talking about the Word. And uh, the way John begins this very specifically, it, it's very on purpose, in the beginning. Now if you turn to the beginning of the, the page 1 of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, 
chapter 1, verse 1, that's also how it begins. In the beginning, and the, the creation of the world is, there, is then related, starting with the words in the beginning. And if you, if you keep reading, we'll, we'll see some more correlations. But just to understand what, what John is doing, he's, very, he's, he's messing with you. A little bit. If, if, if you're one of the uh, his contemporary readers, he's he's getting inside your head right at the start. He's giving you a hint to show how significant it is what he's about to share. It would be the equivalent of a, a president today standing up for a speech and saying, four score and seven weeks ago, I was made pres. I was inaugurated president." What does he? Do- what has that person just done? He said uh, that I am likening myself. You know, because I'm using these well-known words that began the Gettysburg Address, I'm likening myself to Abraham Lincoln. But I'm also saying, you know, Abraham Lincoln said four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth a new nation. So I am likening myself to Abraham Lincoln and the day I became president to the founding of the country. So that's it's a very bold claim I would be making. That's, that is some indication. It's not even close to what John was claiming. But it's some indication to what somebody would have felt reading this. They're saying, oh yeah, I mean, how important can it be? And then, then John begins to employ his arguments. And Matthew, Matthew's goal when he wrote his gospel was to show to Jews that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. John, on the other hand, not, wanted not only to show G- the importance of the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus, but to prove it. And so he, he proceeds almost like you would proceed in a court of law with a very logical argument, bit by bit, placing brick upon brick until finally there's this unassailable wall of logic. And incidentally, uh, so that, that brings us to this word, the word, logos in Greek, or logos, or logos, depending on how you've been taught. Uh, all of those pronunciations are accepted by different people. But we'll, we'll use the pronunciation logos. So this, this word logos, we think, oh, it just means the word. And therefore, that's just another name for Jesus. We, we, we kind of skip over this part because we don't understand what's going on. First of all, the word word in Greek, if, if you were talking about a grammatical word, a sequence of letters that make up some part of speech, you would be using the word, and elsewhere in the New Testament, the word is used is lexis. Uh, the same word that that uh, the car is named after. The, that word is lexis, and it's the word that lexicon comes from. That it's a similar to a dictionary, a list of words. And so the word logos come has a slightly different meaning just on the face of it, which is uh, it is my word that this will happen. Um, I'm giving you my word. So the word of God is tied up right away. It's tied up. We know that it's tied up with God's intention. But in order to understand truly what's going on, or at least to get the first layer of what's going on, we have to understand the idea of Logos as it existed in Jewish thought. And this is from the Old Testament times. That There's a similar word that is in Aramaic, and it, there are similar ideas that are expressed in Hebrew throughout the Old Testament. We'll, we'll discuss what some of them are. But this word Logos had a lot of baggage that came along with it, a ton of context. And the, it, it was a, uh, a, also a, what you might say, an evolving idea in Jewish thought. And, and Greek and Jewish philosophies were merging at this time. So the, the Stoics, the Greek the ph- school of philosophy known as the Stoics, they had an idea that, that a logos was the, the logic behind an argument. It was the intention behind what you're trying to say. So if, if you are good at expressing your argument, then you then you have good rhetoric. But if your argument itself is sound, then you have good logos. And that that's just one example of, of the context of this word. It meant everything from an opinion to an expectation, to speech, to reason, to discourse. Now that makes a little more sense when we when we look back again at the book of Genesis where God says, um, right away you see, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then, he, and then it says, God said, let there be light. So when, when you say in the beginning was the word, you are 
right away calling forth this first action of God, which is to speak and call things into existence. So what form did the creation take? The, the creation was happened by the word of God, the intention of God, the logic behind God's argument that the world should exist was this word. In Jewish thought, God was so incomprehensible and so vast, we have to remember they, they did not have the same beliefs that, that a, a Latter-day Saint audience would have about the nature of God. They don't see God as a, a, a person that has all knowledge and all perfection and has a body. They see God as a force, uh, but, but so much more. Obviously a consciousness, but a, a benevolent consciousness. And someone who is willing to deal with man, but is t- utterly un- incomprehensible to man. And therefore, in order to deal with man, God has an aspect of himself that man can comprehend. And one of those aspects is the word. Now, in, in Christian thought, the Father is, is that Jewish idea of God, this incomprehensible f- force that permeates all things and lives everywhere and is infinite. And then the Son is that aspect of God that can be made flesh and deal with man and condescend to be with man. But they're one and the same entity. And the relationship between the Father or this, this incomprehensible God and the Son, this, this person of flesh who is God made flesh, that relationship is so complex as to gain its own consciousness and its own identity. And that is what's known as the Holy Spirit. That's, that's sort of the idea that a Christian, modern Christian, would talk about when they, when they speak about the Trinity. Incidentally, it's not that far off from our idea of a Godhead, except that we believe if you don't, as long as you don't talk about the, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ's idea of, a, of the, God the Father having a body, as long as you leave that out of it, it's, it's really similar that Jesus and God are one God. They, they don't have any differences in intention, and there's no uh, miscommunication between them. They have the same goals, and Jesus is the God of the, the Old Testament. We'll see that that's very clear. And we, we talked about how that's very clear in Matthew, and this week we'll talk about how that's very clear in John as well. Uh, so I, I guess I, I bring that up to show how much we share in common with, with those who uh, believe not only in the, the Gospels that talk about the life of Jesus, but even Jews themselves, we, we have so many beliefs in common. And so Jews for centuries had believed in this idea of an aspect of God that could be represented to people in a form that they would understand. And this is who they've been speaking with for all these centuries. This is Yahweh, right? Yahweh has, a, has an aspect that is out in the universe doing whatever God does and thinking about whatever God thinks and perhaps doing, performing some form of thought that thought the word thought doesn't even describe accurately, right? The, the, the very idea is that we can't comprehend what God is doing. And so we need to have a logos which is an interface between humans and God. And more it's more than that. So when, when John starts talking about the word of God, he's pulling in uh, very well-known contexts. One of those is from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8. And in Proverbs 8, the idea of, of wisdom is made incarnate. And the, for example, in verse 7, Proverbs chapter 8, so this is wisdom speaking to man in this entire uh, proverb. And here's wisdom saying, my mouth shall speak truth. So in other words, my mouth is the word of God and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. And further on in the uh, chapter, wisdom says to man, I was in the beginning with God. So if we go back to uh, John chapter 1 and we read a little more, we learn that the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Word and God are the same thing, and yet the Word is with God also. So they're the same, and yet they're distinct. The same was in the beginning with God. So it's showing the eternal nature of the Word, this, this intention of God, this comprehensible part of God existed from the beginning. And this is John saying to everyone, look, you already believe in this idea of Logos. You believe in the idea of an aspect of God. That, that's who Moses spoke with on Mount Sinai. 
and and that God said to Moses, you can't look at my face, so but you can see my back parts and maybe my hand, right? And so um, Jews have a hard time with that verse because they're not quite sure what it means because they don't believe that God has those kinds of parts. And John is saying you do have a logos and it is possible for this logos to be made flesh. And that's what Jesus was. So when, when John said at the end, here we are in verse 4 talking about life again. John said at the end, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And now here in verse 4, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John makes a lot of correlations, and we have to pay attention to them and remember them as we read, because certain, certain ideas are going to then light up as, as we go forward. And one of those is life. Life equals light. We have it right here in verse 4. So anytime we hear the word light, or life, we can think back to this beginning chapter and understand that John was preparing us to learn more about those concepts. And there's several concepts, in fact, all of the concepts. And I'll give you one small example real quickly. Uh, the, the first thing that's, the first story that's mentioned here is Jesus being baptized by John. So John is bearing witness to the light, and then Jesus shows up, and Jesus is baptized. So right away we have this idea of water. Jesus comes, he goes into the water, comes out of the water. But that idea is continued as uh, Jesus, right away, Jesus, the story, the first miracle of Jesus is turning water into wine. And then Jesus is at a well, which is a sacred place where uh, God provides sustenance for everyone in the area. And Jesus describes himself as the water of life. And later he says, my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And which is, there are all of these, all of these, stories, all of these different narratives where water is an element, they're pointing us to the final event where a spear, they, they thrust a spear into Jesus' side and water and blood flow out through the wound. In other words, all of these, all of these disparate elements throughout the, chap, the first chapter of John, they all reach their column, they, they all have different uh, details that they add throughout the selected events that John chooses to relate, and they do it in a, in a very specific way, and they all have their culmination at the crucifixion and the atonement. And that's very intentional on John's part. So there, there's nothing haphazard. I guess my point would be there's nothing haphazard about this first chapter of John, even though to us it feels like we don't quite understand what's going on. So this is one indication of what's, what's going on, is John is planting... Almost like the parable of the sower, John is planting a ton of seeds. And each of these seeds is going to grow as we read the book of John. And it may take several readings, right? We may catch some of these layers or some of these ideas, and we, and we may recognize on the first reading, we may say, hey, that's interesting that in chapter 1 we learned about water and then water comes along. We may not understand even that one plant, that one seed, that one fruit, for several readings. Eventually we might say, wow, it's all through this entire book. It just keeps showing up. And then we recognize, oh my gosh, there's another idea, this idea of witnessing, this idea of light, this idea of belief, this idea of glory, this idea that there's a community of believers. All of these are seeds that John is planting as we we read through chapter 1, and every one of these seeds is going to bear fruit by the end, and the final fruit, the most precious fruit, is the one that, is, that, we, that we reap as we read about Jesus' death and resurrection. So that, that is what the purpose is. If the purpose of the entire book of John is to convince us to believe, then the purpose of the first chapter is to plant all of these seeds that are going to help us to believe as we read on. And we'll discuss uh, as many of those as we can get to in the time we have. So we're still talking about this idea of the word. We're still in the first few verses. Uh, and it talks about how, so, oh, and I, and I mentioned, um, I recommend that you read Proverbs chapter 8 if you want to get a really good understanding of what's going on in, uh, with this idea of logos. Because it's, it's closely tied in. The, the description of wisdom in Proverbs 8 is very close to what logos is. Uh, so, at the beginning here, I will speak of excellent things. This is uh, verse 6 in Proverbs 8. I will speak of excellent things. This is, again, 
wisdom speaking unto men. The opening of my lips shall be right things, for my mouth shall speak truth. The words, all the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There's nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth and right to him that find, to them that find knowledge. And the culmination of this description comes in verse 22. The Lord, um, in the Old Testament here in small caps, meaning Yahweh, Yahweh possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. And what is that? The Before the world was, before the world was created. Verse 23, I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. So uh, this this idea of logos is very closely related to the idea of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. And there's another uh, very well-known correlation to the first chapter of John to this, this logos idea, and that is in Psalm 33. And in Psalm 33, the, the psalmist talks a little bit about the word of the Lord. This, this time it's the, it's the same word directly, although um, the Hebrew word would not have carried the same context as the, all the same connotations as the Greek word logos. But in verse 6 of Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now if you remember when we talked, um, especially in our Hebrew vocabulary review at the end of last year, we talked about the spirit is in the breath. The word for breath and spirit is the same in Hebrew. It's ruach, and so, or ruach. And so the, this, this word and breath, what are you doing when you're speaking a word? You're breathing. And so the spirit of God, if you remember in the book of Genesis, before there's anything, the spirit of God exists on the face of the waters, right? There's just deeps, there's just there's just the Spirit of God that's the only thing that's there, and that's sort of the seed that germinates all creation. So that idea of the word being spoken by breath and life being breathed into chaos, that's very closely tied in with Logos. So I'll read verse uh, 6 of Psalm 33 here. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You can see how those things are tied together. And John is pulling all of this in for the, for the kind of person that had the, the, the Bible, who'd read the Bible so many times, who'd read these, these writings and read the Torah and committed large parts of it to memory and loved the word of God and wanted to understand it and was looking for the day when some of these things would come to pass. The, these These ideas that John is expressing in John chapter 1 would have been like little bells ringing, or what we would consider to be, um, if we're reading a Wikipedia page, then we would see that part lit up in blue. That's a link to an entirely new article. It takes us off on a trail that you might never come back from, right? There's so much context behind each of these ideas, and that's what John wanted to do. And so there's a web of understanding that you only get if you uh, have this previous exposition to the scriptures that they would have been steeped in from birth. So that's uh, that's Proverbs chapter 8 and Psalm 33. So now we've we've spent some time, uh, we've spent a fair amount of time already. We're three verses in. You can see there's so much in uh, the first chapter of John. But it says here, all things were made by him. And that took us back to Proverbs and to, to Psalms. And now we get to the idea of the light shining in darkness. So this is another, this is setting up the same thread, another another theme, another seed, which is this spirit slash word slash breathing thread. And um, and you may you may notice that one of the culminations is after Jesus' resurrection, he breathes on his disciples. So the these things have they 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 pop up again and again. So the point about the opening paragraph is that Jesus is the word. This is a riddle. It wouldn't have been clear to anyone. We, I wasn't trying to say earlier when I was saying, you know, people who were steeped in the scriptures, this, this stuff would have been lighting up for them. That doesn't mean they would have understood exactly what John meant. I think even in John's time, this was meant to be a little bit dense. It was, it was meant to be a little bit incomprehensible. You were meant to have to puzzle it out. So the fact that it's a riddle means read the rest of the book of John. 
and then come back and see if I haven't given you a little bit of a clue as to what I was talking about. Then read it again. Then go back and read your Old Testament again, and then read the book of John again. And as you do that, as you start to understand what John's trying to do, then then this first paragraph is going to make more and more sense. Uh, Finally, the light shineth in darkness. So Jesus was life, and that was the light. The light shineth in darkness. So we're setting up a, a verses. We're setting up two sides of an opposition here, light and darkness. The darkness comprehended it not. And you and I, when we read the King James Version and, and we see it, we read about a light shining in darkness and the darkness not comprehending it, we immediately go to, oh, the, the darkness, the, the and there's obviously some agency in the darkness, so it might be people that are in darkness. They don't understand the light. But this is comprehend in the sense that, let's say that I explain something and then you come in with a better explanation that completely includes everything that I said, plus something better, plus it has examples, etc. Then it would, could be accurately said, even in English, it could be accurately said that your explanation comprehended my explanation. So that's the sense in which the darkness does not comprehend the light. In other words, it doesn't completely enfold it. It doesn't engulf it. And, and several translations have this as extinguish or overcome. So the darkness is incapable of putting the light out. So right now you have an idea that there's a conflict, that there is, and I'm going to use a word very intentionally, there's enmity. And again, bells are going off in your head and you're thinking, oh my gosh, where do we, where do we hear about enmity in one of the stories we've already looked back at? Well, we have this early creation of God where there was light, God was giving knowledge, and then there was darkness, there was temptation, and there was an attempt by the darkness to overcome the light. And then there was enmity placed between the seed of the the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. So now we have an, another another seed, another thread dropped down by John, which is this idea of seed and light and darkness. So there's there's offspring of the light, and and uh, that's borne out by what comes next. So John uh, in verse twelve, in fact, this is this is where this comes to a head. So the world has been made by Jesus. Jesus comes into the world. The world doesn't recognize him. That was the true light. So uh, it talks about John. He was a bear, he bears witness. Incidentally, the word for witness and the word for testimony are the same in Greek, and it's martyreo or martyraho, which is uh, the the same word, the same root word. Obviously, it's where we get our our name for martyring comes from. The idea is that when you see something testifying about it and seeing it are the same. You've witnessed it in both cases. And for them, that was that was the same root. And in fact, there are a lot of uh, Latin languages even today that have that same uh, idiosyncrasy, that the word for witness and the word for testimony or testify are the same root. So that that's what's going on for John here. And he's dropping another thread, which is witnessing. And what happens when you witness light is you see it. So, uh, the, when in verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So, in other words, we're all witnesses to this light. And as many as received him, now we're in verse 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, two people don't come together and have sex and create a child, and that's how the sons of God are born. John is saying something different. The will of flesh doesn't make this happen. If you want to be the seed of God, if you want to be the offspring of God, what happens is you receive this light. You're a witness to the light. Now, if light and life are the same thing, then the darkness opposed to the light also has, it's setting up uh, an equivalence there as well. And the darkness is the same as death. So, the this, this seed of the woman from Genesis and the serpent, the seed of the serpent, the seed of evil, the seed of darkness, they, they both have their offspring in the world. And what John is doing is he's describing how God spreads his, how, how God creates new humans. And not only in his physical image, but in his spiritual image, he does it by this idea of spreading light. So then, 
then how do we then how do we see that right away? There's a story about how John, the Baptist, comes into uh, Judea and starts baptizing, and he's bearing witness. He's he's testifying of this light. In verse 15, John was sent to bear witness of the light. John bear witness of him, cried, saying, "This was he. Here's Jesus. This is the one I've been telling you about. He's the one who's even though uh, I started teaching first, he's the one who's greater than I am." And what happens? The followers of John, they see Jesus. They understand how great he is, and what do they immediately do? They go and start testifying of him, and they bring other people. So, for example, we're skipping ahead a little bit to verse 34, or verse 35. Um, Jesus, or John has just borne record, this is the Son of God, and then Jesus looking, uh, or John looking upon Jesus as he walks, says, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus finds Philip in the same city that he finds Andrew and Peter. And Philip, what does Philip do? He goes and finds Nathanael and brings him. And Nathanael says, wait, somebody's coming from, from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? We talked last week about the fact that Nazareth was uh, stick town. It was named after a branch, Nazareth, which is the, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. And uh, so what, what Nathanael's asking is, he comes from the sticks, I mean, because he is, is, can anything really good come from, can anything good really come from there? And, and what Philip's response is very interesting. He says, come and see. In other words, you come, you bear witness to the light. This is the way witnessing works. What we're doing is we're just tracing one of these threads through chapter one alone. And I'm sort of training you to go through the rest of the book of John and look for these, look for these clues. Now, an example of another thread we can go back and pick up is this idea of seed. And Jesus, God, uh, creating new humans by, by those who believe on Jesus' name are, have the power to be born of God. This thread is picked up, and I'll just give you one small example. If you, if you read in John chapter 8, Jesus, what happens is there, there are a number of episodes where Jesus has some sort of discussion or conversation with people, and they don't understand him. And this leads to either to confusion or to conflict. And that conflict leads to more teaching and a clarification, hopefully, by John, or at least uh, some additional enlightenment. And there are um, a very specific number, and they have a very specific correlation. So, for example, there are four, uh, there are four episodes immediately following chapter 1 where Jesus interacts with some Jewish tradition, or traditional figure. And then there are four episodes where Jesus interacts with a different festival, whether it be um, the Hanukkah or Passover. And then, so the, the story, the narrative is very clearly crafted and organized to point to Jesus overcoming the darkness in each of these different arenas of life, of Jewish life. And so just one small example is John chapter 8. And uh, you can pick up you can pick up this idea of light and life earlier in the chapter, but right here in John chapter eight verse thirty three, uh, Jesus is talking about um, who if if you continue in my word, we'll go back to verse thirty one. If you continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, saying, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I, ha- I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. So, uh, and, oh, and, and then they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto him, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the, the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do, this, ye do the deeds of your father. So Jesus is saying uh, what seed they're part of. They're obviously part of the darkness. He separated them. He's saying, Because you are choosing to do works of darkness, your father is death. You are the seed of this enmity that God created in the beginning with the, with the light. 
And if you were the if you were the seed of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham, which are to follow the light. Uh, very fascinating. So that's John chapter eight. We'll we'll continue now, picking up another thread in chapter one, and uh, I'll just give you an example of what some of these place names mean. So John is baptizing in a place that's called in some translations it's called Bethany, beyond Jordan, and there's actually not the the interesting thing is this. There's a Bethany in the there's a there's a well-known place name which is Bethany in the New Testament which is outside of Jerusalem where Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. But there wasn't actually a place called Bethany beyond Jordan. But there was a place in Aramaic where the name might have been Bethaniah. And John it it almost seems like John has deliberately misspelled it here. And at first you might think, oh, somebody has copied this down wrong or something, some, there's some, been some mistake made. But thematically, it actually really works because what's happening is John is, first, Jesus is beginning his ministry. So he's, he's tying these two places together thematically. And uh, the Bethany, it's called, in other places in the New Testament, it's called Bethany beyond Jordan. In other words, he's, John is saying these two places are, are equivalent in some way. He's, he's drawing a parallel between them because in one place, Jesus begins his ministry. And in Bethany, if you remember, or as we'll learn if you don't remember, uh, Bethany is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's that work that begins the, the, the terrible and violent persecution where Jesus, where his Jesus's enemies really get serious about putting him to death, because now it can no longer be denied that Jesus is a powerful servant of God. Nobody, nobody can stand against him. The, if if these Jewish leaders don't get a handle on this Jesus movement really quickly, they're going to find themselves swept aside, and they don't want that. And so it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead in Bethany that actually brings to a head this opposition against Jesus. And so what seems to be happening is John is drawing this parallel between Bethany or Bethaniah or Bethaniah or what's also called Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptized. So the place names, that, that's a little indication that even the place names in the book of John are going to have some thematic significance. So now knowing all this stuff, every verse, almost every verse you read in, you've got a ton of little hyperlinks lighting up for you. Uh, John is... John is testifying about Jesus. He's talking about baptizing him. Here's the Lamb of God. So the first time Jesus testi- or John testifies of Jesus, in verse 29, he says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and, say, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And that just calls into mind a whole host of images for a Hebrew reader. And the first Lamb would be this, this Lamb in Genesis chapter 22, this lamb that takes the place of Isaac, right? This lamb that is put in place of the death of another person. But then the, but that, that is followed quickly by the Passover lamb, this lamb that is killed so that all of the firstborn sons in, throughout the entire nation of Egypt can live. And then obviously the, the, the lambs that are offered in front of the tabernacle as sacrifices and each day on the Day of Atonement, this lamb's blood that is carried into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the altar and is meant to, when the lamb's blood flows into this or, or is thrown in or sprinkled in this holy place, the Holy of Holies, then the entire nation is purified. And even the, even the people, even the, the priests, the lineage of the priests are a symbol of the lamb because the Levites were sort of taken out of the normal rotation of, of birthright and they were used as a, a substitute so that the rest of the tribes didn't have to all figure out how to send priests and, and there could be one lineage. So the Levites were sort of a, a, a sacrifice for all. They, they themselves were lambs to the work of God and the work of the temple. And that's, that's what would have lit up for uh, a contemporary reader when, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And it goes beyond that because uh, at some point, Jesus, as we, as we look back after reading the entire work, we look back and realize that Jesus was a lamb that did not have anyone to 
to to step in. So many times throughout the old the Old Testament, there would be some. If it the more important the sacrifice, the more crucial would be this lamb, this this substitute, this proxy coming in and taking the place of it. And as we read the story of Jesus, we realize when that crucial moment arrives, there's no there's no lamb, there's no ram caught in the thicket, there's no. Uh, there's no sacrifice out in front of the temple. There is no proxy. There's only Jesus. So that's the thread that he's laying down there when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And so anytime you read about a lamb or a sacrifice, then you kind of you kind of see that thread showing its head again. So now as we're as we're beginning to activate all of these ideas as we read through the Gospel of John, we'll start to see just how brilliantly John organized all these ideas and and fed them to us bit by bit so that we could benefit from reading it over and over again. Now, there's one more part that's very uh, often misunderstood. I wish we could go through everything that I prepared for um, the Gospel of John, but let's let's. There's one more main idea that that I wanted to hit, and let's see if I can get through it in the time we have remaining. So, um, towards the end of chapter one. Philip has brought Nathanael to Jesus, and Nathanael is coming towards Jesus. And here's a, and here's a verse that most people just, they read it and they think, what, what does that even mean, right? We, we don't know what it means. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Where do you know me from, Jesus? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. So isn't this interesting? Jesus sees Nathanael coming. He says, here's an Israelite. There's no deceit in him. And Nathanael says, where do you know me from? I saw you under a fig tree. Wow, you're the, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Where does the, this, this seems really strange. Okay, so let's see if we can unpack this and understand what's going on. So, first of all, Israelite. The word Israelite, when Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. Understand that Israel is another name for Jacob. And if you know what the word Jacob means, if you know what Jacob, where Jacob got his name, right? So what happened is Esau was born first to Isaac and Rebekah. And then on his, on his heels, literally, because uh, Jacob was holding on, to the uh, heel of Esau as he was born. On his heels, Jacob was born. And so he was named the heel, the heel holder, someone who holds on by the heel. And that, that's kind of the, ne- the meaning of the word Jacob. And it, and it kind of means somebody who supplants you. You're, you're holding on to someone else's heels so that you can get through subterfuge. You can get what's not coming to you, what's coming to them. And in fact, when, when Jacob receives the blessing of Esau, Esau says, wasn't he rightfully called Jacob because he's stolen my birthright? So that shows you that they understood, that that is the understanding that they have. Jacob is named after a deceiver. And when he flees away from Esau, because Esau's going to kill him, Esau's so upset that he's going to kill him. As soon as, as soon as Isaac dies, their father, then Esau's out for blood. And so what, uh, what John is doing and what Jesus is doing is calling into mind this story of Jacob being called a supplanter. But he says, so in other words, he says, here comes an Israelite, somebody who's the family of Jacob, but in this particular Israelite, there is no deceit. So he's, he's flipped the, the image on its head and he said, here comes an Israelite indeed, but in, whom, in, this, in this Israelite, there is no guile. And Nathanael says, where do you know me from? Now, Jesus calls another scriptural image into their mind, and he says, I saw you under a fig tree. Now, this is, this is pretty obscure, but the, in the prophets of, or I should say the prophecies of Micah and Zechariah, there's this idea that in the, in the last days in the New Jerusalem, so all the prophets talked about the New Jerusalem, the final days, but there's this idea in those particular prophets that part of the Jews returning to their their land of promise would be that they would each have their own vine and their own fig tree that they could sit under. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're an Israelite indeed, but you are the one, you're one of the changed Israelites. 
You're one of the ones that God has performed his new work on that the prophets talked about, and you have been changed so that you're not like the old Israelites that dealt falsely with God, but you're ready to uphold the covenant that God gave to Israel. And as token of that, I, I recognized you when I saw you under your own fig tree. So Jesus is bringing forth all these images from the scriptures, and Nathaniel recognizes that. And he says, wow, you really are the son of God. You really are the king of Israel. I can tell by your knowledge of the scriptures and how insightful you are and probably what he felt in his presence. So here we are in verse 50. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. So he's saying, oh, you like, you see what I did there? You like that? You're going to see a lot more of that. There's a lot more where that came from. And there's, and there's even better to follow. So then he gives him another example from the scriptures. And this time it's, it's doubled and tripled up, the meaning is. So in verse 51, Jesus saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you. And the, these words, verily, verily, are uh, in Greek, amen and amen. And that may, that may ring a bell for you from the end of the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. Whenever Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he's actually saying, Amen and Amen, I say unto you. Um, truly, truly, or in truth, in truth. When he, when he says that twice, he's putting a superlative on it. He's saying, in the truest possible way, I'm telling you something right now. Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, this evokes immediately, for sure, in Nathaniel's mind. Where, where do we read about, in the stories that we've just been talking about, where do we read about angels descending and ascending to heaven? That's in the story of Jacob. So Jacob, right after he runs away from Esau, he flees into the desert and he, he sleeps with his head on a rock in a place called, which he later calls Bethel, because over the, which is the house of God. Over the course of the night... He sees these angels ascending and descending on a ladder from heaven to earth. And he calls it Bethel, the house of God, which came to be the, the name for the tabernacle or the temple, which didn't yet exist at that time. And the reason is this, the, the temple or the tabernacle was the place where heaven and earth intersected and angels would, symbolically at least, that was their entry place into the world. When God had messages to send, they would come through this ladder or this, this shared space. So Jesus is saying, you are going to be a witness of this shared space. But instead of saying, he, you, you're going to see this ladder or this, um, this vision, you're going to see these angels ascending and descending upon the, the rock of Bethel or upon the house of God, you're going to see them descending upon the Son of Man. So he puts himself in the place of the temple. But there's more going on here than just that. Now, earlier on, what does John say about Jesus taking upon himself flesh? In verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So that, that word dwelt comes from the, the Old Testament word for tabernacle. So the, the word for tabernacle is skene, and, or S-K-E-N-E. And the word used here for dwelt is skenaho. So it's, it's sort of a this... The idea of the tabernacle turned into a verb. He's, he's basically saying, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And tabernacle wasn't like we think of as a, a tabernacle in Latter-day Saint culture, where it's a meeting place. It was the temple. The tabernacle and the temple were the same thing. That was the shared space between heaven and earth, between man and God. And so what John is saying is Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the sp shared space between man and God. He is the intersection, God and man together. And Jesus is saying, when he says this to Nathaniel, he says, I, you shall see these angels descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. In other words, I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. But he also uses another layer of reference here. He refers to himself instead of as the Word or as God or as the tabernacle. He calls himself the Son of Man. And as we discussed late last year, this is a reference to, this is Jesus' most common title that he applied to himself. And this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this dream of the beasts 
of the earth, the kingdoms of the earth, in other words, the seed of the devil, prevailing over someone in the image of a mortal man, and yet who is then raised to the side of God and receives all glory and all power is given to him and is ultimately victorious even though he dies, even though he's trampled under the feet of these beasts. And that, and that is one of the reasons why Jesus continually uses the title Son of Man to refer to himself. He's, he's calling forth very deliberately the, the images and the ideas from this, from this dream of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. So in this final verse here, Jesus is saying, hereafter you're, you're going to see the temple itself is going to be, and later, and later on, Jesus calls the, the, the same, or John, I should say, calls attention to this same idea when Jesus is talking about bringing the temple. If you destroy the temple, I'll raise it again in three days. And then John says, he, he sort of inserts himself in the story and says, but his disciples didn't understand that right then. But after Jesus was dead and he was raised in three days, his disciples understood that he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so that's John saying, Jesus didn't always intend to be understood. There were times when he was deliberately confusing or saying things that wouldn't be understood. Only until later would they be understood, only in retrospect. And John has followed that exact example. He followed Jesus' example on how to teach. He would leave little clues, and then only later on, when you knew the ending of the story, would you understand that. And if you went back and studied it, then, then more and more things will become clear to you. And John does this be precisely because Jesus did it with John himself. Jesus did this kind of thing. He dropped something and he'd say, if you destroy this temple, I'll bring, I'll, I'll bring it back in three days. And John and all of the disciples were like, what does he even mean? It's not until Jesus was risen that they understood what he meant. Jesus didn't bother to explain. He wanted them to have to work at it. And that's what John wants us to do. But there's more that's going on here when, when John says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And in verse 14, it says that we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. So what, is, what does this mean, full of grace and truth? Of course, it's a wonderful thing to say about anyone. But what is, why, what is John's intention by using those specific words? Now, again, John is calling into our minds something from the Old Testament. And in this particular case, it's from the 34th chapter of Exodus. So in Exodus 34 is where Moses has just destroyed the first tablets that he brought down. And God gives him the same revelation again. He, he hews two more stone tablets out of the mountain and brings down some more commandments. And the Lord passes before Moses and he tells Moses, you know, I'm going to I'm going to find a way to forgive Israel for what they've done. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Now this word goodness can be translated any number of ways, but the idea behind it is mercy, loving-kindness, or covenant love. So that so God is full of covenant love and truth. It's all these ideas that form the what became in the New Testament the idea of grace, which is God's mercy that we don't that is undeserved unto man. And that's in the Old Testament that was conveyed through this this idea of loving kindness or of covenant love. So basically what is happening here is Yahweh is telling Moses. This is the golden calf narrative when we read in verse 14 that the 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 word became flesh and was tabernacled among us and then was full of grace and truth. What we're learning, in fact, is that uh, Yahweh, first of all, this word is Yahweh. This is, this is John saying, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. But also in verse 7 of Exodus 34, Moses goes on to write, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So what what... The, the end result of all of this is that God has given to, through the, the entire story of the Old Testament is that God gave all these covenants to the Israelites, to the sons of Jacob, to the seed of God, of, to the seed of Abraham, hoping that he would find a faithful covenant partner in man and continually failing to find that. And what John is saying in John chapter 1 is, not only is Yahweh one part of this covenant where he's God, telling us if we will just obey his commandments, we will receive all of the blessings promised throughout the Old Testament. But John is saying, 
not only has God one side of this, but he recognized he's never going to find a faithful covenant holder, a faithful covenant partner in man. And so he came down to earth himself to do that part of it as well, to take up the slack where we left off and could not perform that covenant. So not only is, is Jesus one side of the covenant from God who's going to provide these blessings, but he's also the other side of the covenant as man who is going to earn the blessings. All of these ideas are given their initial exposition in John chapter 1, and we are left to understand them, to come to greater knowledge of each of them and greater exposure to each of them, and then to their culmination through the rest of the book of John. Through successive readings, we're meant to understand this our whole life long. And so it's not just a a cryptic passage about the Word and then a strange story about Jesus meeting his first disciples. The first chapter of John is is an exposure to ideas that we'll be studying the rest of our lives. And it tells us everything we need to know about what kind of God God is and what kind of Savior Jesus is. And if we'll study it, and then we will come to a greater understanding of all the ideas we get through it, then we will truly accomplish the purpose of John, which was that we may believe on him and that believing we might have life through his name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.